Six o'clock on a Wednesday evening. Good evening to all of you, one and all, and uh, those of you in different time zones. Good afternoon. Uh, good morning if you're across the world. This is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. We're heard weekly here on the Progressive Radio Network. Um, I don't know where to start in talking about Charleston, South Carolina. I can say that. I don't think I've heard as much, uh, ordinarily I would use a word in common language that starts with a B, but I'm just going to say I have not heard so much crap in a very, very, very long time. And I mean pure, unadulterated, hypocritical crap. Now, the atrocity that this kid Dylan Roof perpetrated on nine innocent people took their lives. And what we have had happen now in the days following is a spirited debate about the Confederate flag. Never liked the Confederate flag. Believe it or not, I once had a guy almost cut off my ear with a sword for defacing the Confederate flag that he had in his room. But that's a whole other discussion for another day. I was just a kid, and I was a wise guy back then. Here's my thing. And, you know, this is kind of like sort of you can take it for what it's worth kind of thing. Number one, this is nothing more. All of this furor and debate and Sturm and drawing about the Confederate flag is nothing more than a safe and easy way to say that you're not a racist while not really doing anything about racism. Would anybody at Walmart or in the state of South Carolina or the state of Mississippi or NASCAR or anybody have even talked about this flag if nine people hadn't died? Think about that for a minute. Would any of this this tortured debate over the Confederate flag. And, you know, uh, politicians now find it easy just to gang up on them. What is that, the Sons of Confederate Veterans? They're the, they're the one organization that's holding out. Everybody else is jumping on a bandwagon that they should have been on decades ago. There's no excuse for the Confederate flag flying over any, any state capital in this country. And the people that flew it and the people that supported continuing to fly it knew all this. 
They know it's a symbol of right. They can talk all of that mess they want about. Well, we're trying to honor my grandpappy. Get away from me with that. Get away from me. You honor the Confederate flag because it is a symbol of racism. And you can feel comfortable being a racist with the Confederate flag because you can defy anybody to call you a racist if you have the Confederate flag on your on your trunk or whatever. Now, some of the people that use it as a banner are straight up and, and, and out and out racist. That's that's up to them. I suppose you have a First Amendment right to be a racist, just like you got a First Amendment right to be an idiot, and they're one and the same as far as I'm concerned. But my guess is very, very few people who are participating in this tortured debate about the Confederate flag, never mind any kind of tortured debate about how this guy Dylan Roof went apparently. The first report was that it was his mother's gun or something, or she took it away from him and he took it back or whatever. But the last report I heard was that Dylan Roof bought this gun at a local store. Anybody having any kind of tortured debate about how and why people so often, not just in South Carolina, so often have no business possessing a firearm But yet and still, they manage to get one as easily as we go down to the corner store and buy a Snicker bar. That they don't discuss because it's easier to confront the Confederate flag issue. The roots of racism in this country and how racism produced the racism that Dylan Roof exhibited at the age of 21 That's more difficult to discuss. It's easier to say, see, I ain't racist. I don't like the Confederate flag either. That's the easiest thing. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Jason Jason Talbotfield, our program director, said, by the way, you can swear all you want. You probably know that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's it's a throwback to my terrestrial radio days. I I just don't normally, because see, Next thing you know, you'd hear a, a, a string of obscenities from me that might not get the progressive radio network in trouble, but I'd have no listeners left. Listen to that vile, vulgar so-and-so. Anyway, the Confederate flag has become a convenient shield. Everybody can run and say, get rid of it, get rid of it. And, and you know, people are like, oh, you shouldn't politicize it. Listen, let me enlighten those who don't know this already, and most of you do. All of this back and forth, this debate, is intensely political. The Republican Party and their five dozen people who are running for president, more on one latest one later, all of them want to open up the Republican ranks to include people that wouldn't piss on them if they were on fire under normal circumstances. The Confederate flag issue gives them the perfect opportunity. Jump up and say, see, I love black people too. (laughs) Ain't ain't I great? 
Come on, let's have a meeting. Come on, let's do this. Come on, let's do that. Now, in the midst of all this, I don't want people to think that I'm like evil by nature. I will give the state of South Carolina credit. On the one hand, that you know, there's talk they're going to seek the death penalty against this guy, Dylan Roof. And remember that cop that shot that black guy, he's facing first-degree murder charges. Did the cop that shoot uh, Eric Garner, Pantaleo, did he face? Oh, that's right. He didn't face any charges. Did the guy Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri, is he facing? He didn't face any charges. South Carolina, a little different. But I want to talk for a moment about the Confederate flag, since that seems to be what everybody's all into. Let's talk about the Confederate flag, all right? Now, during the actual Civil War, there were three flags that were proffered as representative of the Confederate States of America, the Confederacy. None of them are the one that has come into common usage as the Confederate flag. Now, the guy that developed the second and third flags, and by the way, none of these things ended up being widely used. The third flag was hardly even manufactured. First and second a little bit more. But the guy that developed them, guy was an editor and a news writer and a stain on journalism by the name of William Thompson. This is what he had to say about the flag that he designed. Quote, as a people, we are fighting to maintain the heaven-ordained supremacy of the white man over the inferior or colored race. A white flag would thus be emblematical of our cause. I think it would be emblematic, but what the heck? I guess maybe his journalism skills weren't all they were cracked up to be. Bottom line, and the flag that he designed had the Confederate symbol that we've come to know and many revile in one corner. The rest of the flag was white. Now, lest you misinterpret what William Thompson was talking about, he went further. Let's be clear. Quote, as a national emblem, it is significant of our higher cause, the cause of a superior race, and a higher civilization contending against ignorance, infidelity, and barbarism. Another merit to the new flag is that it bears no resemblance to the now infamous banner of the Yankee Vandals. God, I'm glad these people didn't win that war. Jesus Christ almighty. So lest you think that, they, you know, well, we developed this because we wanted our own identity and it had nothing to do with You see what this guy said. Now, again, the flag that he designed is not, and by the way, don't take my word for this. Look it the hell up. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Look it up. Look it up for yourself. Like I looked it up for myself. And I cross-checked it against several references. I started with Wikipedia, but then I went and did further research to make sure Wikipedia wasn't BSing me. And in this case, it wasn't. Now, Thompson's design, as I said, is not the design that we see today. That design was created by William Porcher Miles, 
And, and this is important, ladies and gentlemen, the one we see today never represented the Confederate States of America. Never. It was, in fact, the battle flag of the Army of Virginia under a general we've come to know as Robert E. Lee. I believe the uh, Tennessee militia also had a similar flag. So when people go off and get away from me, that was the flag of Northern Virginia. I, I may have misspoke. I said Army of Virginia. It's Army of Northern Virginia. And it was never emblematic of the Confederate States of America. In fact, the Confederate flag that we know now, which is, has been misnamed Stars and Bars, misnamed, and by the way, the second flag, the one that William Thompson created, was called the Bloodstained Banner. Just a little history for y'all. I want y'all to understand what's going on here and how, to an extent, our concerns are diverted, right? So you go forward to the 1920s and the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan as a major force in American life. Had a march on Washington. Huge numbers of people showed up. Well, that's when the Confederate flag came into prominent usage in the 20s. And by the way, as far as it flying from the state capitol in South Carolina, guess what year that happened? It wasn't the 20s. It wasn't the Civil War. It was 1961. So you see, a lot of this alleged iconography is racist crap. I'm sorry. I hate to be blunt. But to see nine lives sacrificed at the altar of, well, Walmart's not selling the Confederate flag anymore. NASCAR's taking it off their car. Why did you have it on in your stores and on your cars in the first place? Nine people had to die before you woke up? I'm sorry. No sale. I mean, the other people, you know. And I have to say this as well, and we'll move on to some other stories. But I have to say, I have talked to a number of people recently in the wake of this who said to me, and these are not black people, by the way, not people for Black Lives Matter or whatever. I actually have a relatively diverse circle of people. Latinos, Moroccans, Eastern Europeans, a lot of different people I talk to. And we have discussions that are respectful, disagree, agree, whatever. But the one thing that would, that has kind of created a little resonance in my head is that to a person, these folks do not understand the forgiveness of Dylan Rue by the congregants of that church. They, they don't understand it. They're not saying it's a bad thing. They're not saying they're, they're you know, 
what's wrong with them. It's perplexing. It doesn't make sense. You know, cognitive dissonance, you ever heard of that? Cognitive dissonance, which says, like, I, I don't understand this. I can't figure this out. It doesn't make logical sense to me. Well, that's essentially how a lot of people I talk to. Not maybe, maybe you talk to other people and they understand it totally. If you know the history of the AME Church, I didn't come up in the AME Church. I came up in the Episcopal Church. But if you know the history of the AME Church, that strain of forgiveness becomes that much more understandable. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to recite the history because I'm not a historian on that level. And I'm not a congregant. So, you know, if you know anybody from the AME, ask them, how could these folks forgive these people? Maybe not every AME church in, in America would. But these people did. And to me, they're more important than taking down every Confederate flag that's ever been put up on the face of this stinking planet. Because that is Christianity. As I've come to know it, as I've been taught by people, that level of forgiveness, which I can't, look, I can't say I'd be that forgiving. But I am saying, if you want to see, if you want to look Christianity in the eye and see what it took, talk to the folks from that church. That, ladies and gentlemen, is Christianity. Before we move off of Charleston, South Carolina, and I know I've been rambling on for a while, the Justice Department, according to the New York Times, is likely to file federal hate crime charges against Dylan Roof. He already faces nine counts of murder could get the death penalty in state court, but there's widespread agreement, according to the Times, among officials at the Justice Department and the FBI, that the shooting at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston was so horrific and racially motivated that the federal government was obligated to address it. FBI analysts have also concluded, with a high degree of certainty, that Dylan Roof posted a racist manifesto online, which could be a key to any federal charges. Uh, that Dylan Roof is a racist seems beyond question. Should he be charged with a hate crime in addition to the nine councilmen? Not instead of, but in addition to the nine? Absolutely. Charge him with everything you think you need to charge him with. I don't agree with the death penalty. So I don't, and, and maybe this is my little AME thing coming out in here. I don't want to see him executed. I don't. Put away forever and ever and ever? Yeah. I don't want to see him executed. Um, and I think that, that for some people in D.C., they want this hate crime statute to have teeth. And they're willing to make an example of Dylan Roof. Their thing is like, yo, you know, we really haven't used it much. And it's not going to, you know, it's not going to mean anything unless it's used for something. So they're using it. And, you know, this, this manifesto, it, it, um, maybe some of you have heard this already, but I'll repeat it for those maybe who have not. Quote, this is from Dylan Roof. I have no choice. I am not in the position to, alone, go into the ghetto and fight. 
I chose Charleston because it is the most historic city in my state and at one time had the highest ratio of blacks to whites in the country. We have no skinheads, no real KKK, no one doing anything but talking on the Internet. Well, someone has to have the bravery to take it to the real world, and I guess that had to be me. The scariest thing in that little passage I just read was talking on the Internet. See, because maybe unbeknownst to a lot of us, because, you know, there are a lot of million different ways to create closed groups and, and et cetera. And, and if you're not in that loop, you may never know that some of these racist websites and some of this chatter among racists exists. But it does. I would hope that law enforcement, I mean, beyond the Southern Poverty Law Center, who does a yeoman's work in exposing these people, I would hope law enforcement is picking up on that chatter the same way they're picking up on terrorist chatter from outside the United States. You, know, you want to spy on people? Spy on them. Don't spy on me. I ain't doing nothing. <laughs> spy on the races. And I know, you know, some people may say, well, you know, you don't want to spy on them either. I don't care about them. I don't. Not enough to say you shouldn't spy on them. You want to spy on them? Spy on them. If you can stop the next Dylan Roof, and trust me, I don't care what they do with the Confederate flags, there's another Dylan Roof out here somewhere. If they can stop that, later for it. Spy on them. I don't care. One thing I do care about, and I am très troubled about this TPP business. There was a procedural vote yesterday to end debate. This is in the Senate on legislation granting President Obama enhanced negotiating powers to complete this deal. And it apparently assures final passage today sometime. The procedural vote was 60 to 37, which was just the minimum. Final Senate passage, 51 votes. So it's going to get done. And In a startling switch, the president was put over the top by, wait for it, Republicans in the Senate, who, of course, have never found a a big business person that they couldn't toady up to. And that's what this is. This Trans-Pacific Partnership now, I don't profess to be an economist or a genius or whatever. But I know toting when I see it. And this is pure toting to the interests of big business in this country. And it's giving the finger to American workers, which is why the unions opposed it so strongly. It really, and by the way, creates situations where American sovereignty could be compromised. Now, I don't like to deal in supposition. Generally speaking, you know, something's happening. Say it's happening. Make it fact. Don't say, well, if you do this, this could happen. I don't like that. It's something something about it sticks in my craw. But I got news for you. America will rue the day. And I assume it's coming soon. That this Trans-Pacific Partnership 
goes into effect through the day. And it's going to be a permanent stain on Barack Obama's legacy. That's right. And I don't, you know, I, I mean, I like Barack Obama. But this will be a permanent stain on his legacy. He's wrong on this. And see, like, you know, a lot of times people uh, who support him, when they hear so, especially a black person, say he's wrong, what's wrong with you turning your card to the black race? No, I'm sorry. I have said from the day this man took office, when I had a microphone on terrestrial radio, if I agree with something he does, I say so. If I disagree with something he does, I say so. Period. It's not about, you know, towing anybody's line. It's not about anybody's stinking talking points. You agree? You agree. You disagree? You disagree. And on this, it's not even close. It is not even close. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is a rip, straight up. You all know what I'm talking about when I say a rip, right? And, and I feel bad we, we don't have the ability to take phone calls. But that's okay. Because, you know, I found out in the last few weeks or so, I am fully able to run my yap for an hour without any problems at all. I, you know, I don't have a guess. But that's cool. Do enough research and vacate all the other crap that's in my head. And I can usually come up with something halfway, relatively coherent. And I'm telling you now, this TPP thing, I mean, it's, I, I assume now it's too late to, like, organize a march on D.C. or, you know, organize some kind of a huge protest to say that this thing is shafting American workers at the altar of big business. And not just American. This is the thing. They're not just American big business. We're all them xenophobes that talk about illegal immigrants and all the rest of that crap. When you have a trade deal that will give, all, give up part of America's sovereignty and America's ability to actually protect its own citizens. That's right. International companies under this deal could sue if a particular state, for example, enacted an environmental regulation that they say would hurt their business, they could sue. What's up with that? Now, you know, they've talked about lost manufacturing jobs, lower wages for American workers. Do we have any manufacturing jobs left in this country, ladies and gentlemen? Do we really? I mean, we have some. We have some. And God love the people that make things in this country, all right? Uh, and I don't care what their race is, creed, color, nationality, gender orientation. If you make something, I salute you. But, you know, this crap keeps up. We're not even going to be making paper clips here. We probably don't make them here now. We're not going to have anything. Nothing. But maybe that's how some people want it. Maybe people just want American workers on their knees because that way 
They can pay him nothing. You know, never mind the, the uh, you know, $15 an hour. I'll show you $15 an hour, pal. It's ugly. And it's a stain. And if we let it happen, it's to our collective shame. I know you can blame the president to an extent, but it's to our collective shame that we couldn't stop this thing. Closer to home. You know what? I think I'm going to take a break now because I, I got a bunch of other stuff. You know, they made a tentative deal on extending rent laws up in Albany. Uh, I don't like that deal any, be- any more than I like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Want to know why? Stick around. It's 29 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show on the Progressive Radio Network. Back in the flash. Now, 6.30. we got a half hour left to this thing that I call the Mark Riley Show. You can call it what you want. Um, Albany. You know, when people ain't getting arrested every now and then, they make deals. So, well after, how many days after? It's about eight days after the rent laws, rent regulations in New York expired, they came up with a solution. Uh, the legislative session ran a week late, which really, by the way, pisses off most legislators, especially downstate legislators, because they want to get the hell out of Albany. Y'all want to experience hell on earth? Spend the summer in Albany. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Uh, so they, uh, among other things, agreed to extend mayoral control of New York City schools, but only by a year, which is a blow to Mayor de Blasio, who wanted a permanent extension. You know, Governor Andrew Cuomo backhands Bill de Blasio almost at will. Uh, It's just like, poof, you want permanent? I give you a year, chump. Uh, But what really irritates me about this deal that they made 
is the business of rent regulation and rent laws. Okay. Uh, 421A, which provides tax incentives to developers who eventually, they will create affordable housing in the short term, but they're looking long term and they're looking sooner or later to jack that stuff up to market rate. That's what they do. Now, 421A will be extended provided that within six months, a prevailing wage requirement for construction workers is negotiated by industry and labor. Industry will negotiate a construction deal, prevailing wage deal, and then they'll promptly turn around and pay workers who are hungry for work less. Having a discussion earlier today with some folks about the fact that while the big ticket construction sites, you know, the Hudson Yards and some of these other huge, monstrous, gigantic structures that are going up all over New York City, those are union gigs. People are able to work and feed their families. But when you get out into the neighborhoods and when you get to renovations as opposed to new construction, when you get out to brownstones, these people are using whatever labor they can find. I mean, I, I'll never forget this. I was in, I, I live in Jersey, and I was going to the gym uh, that I was attending at that time, that I was a member of at the time. And they were redoing the floor in the atrium of the building where the gym was located. And there were a bunch of guys on their knees, and they're putting in this, you know, the tile work and all ordinarily skilled labor that would pay relatively well. Not one of them spoke English. And it's not. Don't don't even think they were Spanish because they weren't. The language they were speaking, and I forgive me, I you know, I'm, I'm not a linguist or anything, but it sounded to me to be Eastern European. So, you know, when it comes to 421A and da 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 you know, sell that snake oil to somebody else. As far as prevailing wage, that's business goes on as usual. And every politician in Albany knows it. Now, uh, Governor Cuomo proposed creating an independent monitor to review cases in which unarmed people were killed by law enforcement. Couldn't get a deal with the legislators on that, probably Flanagan on the Republican side. So the governor has agreed to let Eric Schneiderman the attorney general do that as a special prosecutor for one year while trying to reach you. Is there anything in politics these days that they can't do for like a short term fix? It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. They say, you know, it's a temporary solution. Uh, the AG says the governor and lawmakers couldn't devise a permanent solution, calling it, quote, part of a broader failure to achieve meaning, meaningful reform on a range of issues in this legislative session. He ain't lying about that. He couldn't reach an agreement to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 16 to 18. So they're going to address it without legislative action. His administration is going to move state prison inmates ages 16 and 17 to separate facilities. Now, the agreement still has to be approved. They'll approve it. They will approve it. Now, as far as the rent regulation thing is concerned, and, and I mean, this affects everybody that lives in rental housing in the city of New York. See, because you don't have to be 
at the vacancy decontrol threshold to wake up one day and find out you are at the vacancy decontrol threshold, at which time your landlord is going to try and push you out so that they can he can jack up the price and get market rate for your apartment. Now, the agreement that they made, okay, uh, and of course the Assembly Democrats wanted tougher controls, tougher regulations. The Republican toads in the Senate said no. I'm talking about the state Senate now. Nope, nope, couldn't do it. So the agreement they came to was, to me, deeply unsatisfying, but hey, that's just me. The rent threshold at which a vacant apartment can be deregulated will increase from 2500 bucks a month to 2700 bucks a month. 200 bucks a month. Could you spare it? It would rise in the future based on increases in regulated rents approved by the Rent Guidelines Board, who postponed making a decision on increases until the deal was struck. Now, Carl Hasty, the Assembly Speaker, said the agreement would, quote, slow the loss of affordable housing in the city of New York. Governor Cuomo, a major step forward in terms of tenant protection. You're kidding me, right? <laughs> You're kidding me, right? Michael McKee, treasurer of the Tennis Political Action Committee, says, quote, this is an absolutely lousy deal. Amen. So sellout by Andrew Cuomo to his real estate, but I don't know if it's a sellout to Andrew Cuomo or not. It's not a great deal, I can tell you that. Governor Cuomo says he's not getting sufficient credit for the agreement. Uh... Okay, so they did other stuff, property tax caps and some of that, some of the rest of that stuff. But I got to tell you, this rent regulation thing ain't cool. I'm sorry. They should do better than this. They should have done better, and it should have been done in a timely fashion. You know, it's not like they, you know, have, you know, the, NBA finals in Albany or NHL finals in Albany. It's something to distract people. They could have got it done. They didn't. So they made what I consider to be a haphazard slipshod deal. But that's how that works. Want to sell somebody out? Sell out the tenants. Moving right along. Uh, The Baltimore Sun reported yesterday that the autopsy on Freddie Gray, you know, the guy who died in police custody and they said his spine was shattered? Well, his death has now been ruled a homicide. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, a homicide. Uh, What the medical examiner found is that Freddie Gray sustained a, quote, high-energy injury. And that the failure of officers to follow procedures meant the death was a homicide. Now, I, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly uh, what to make of what this medical examiner found. The Baltimore Sun said that the autopsy found that the injury to Freddie Gray, similar to those sustained in shallow water diving, was probably caused when the van suddenly decelerated. 
The report said Mr. D- Mr. Gray's death could not be ruled an accident and was instead a homicide because officers did not follow safety procedures through acts of omission. You mean somebody slammed on the brakes and that killed him? Uh, oh, by the way, uh, the state's attorney for Baltimore was not happy with the fact that somebody leaked this to the Baltimore Sun. As I have repeatedly stated, I strongly condemn anyone with access to trial evidence who has leaked information prior to the resolution of this case. The officers who were charged, uh, and I think it was six of them, yeah, six on various charges, their lawyers hadn't gotten the autopsy report yet. So maybe maybe the state's attorney is upset because maybe this is going to somehow prejudice the jury pool or somehow turn public opinion against the cops. Like, there's a a great deal that needs to be done to turn public opinion against these cops. But, I mean, I I was never completely satisfied with the media reports of the circumstances of Freddie Gray's death in the first place. Here's a quote from the New York Times story. Although the officers loaded Mr. Gray into the van on his abdomen, the medical examiner surmised that Mr. Gray may have made it to his feet and then been thrown into a wall when the van abruptly changed direction. Because he was not belted and he had his wrists and ankles shackled, he was, quote, at risk for an unsupported fall during acceleration or deceleration of the van. Maybe that is what happened. I don't know. It It sounds, at the very least, negligent on someone's part, you know. uh, And again, a situation where a guy died over what? What what did they nail him for? I forgot. Eric Garner was loose cigarettes. I forgot exactly what it was that Freddie Gray did. And, And to an extent, it's, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. He shouldn't have died. That really is what matters. He shouldn't have died. And I hope that the people of Baltimore, you know, because now they're not really out in the street like they were. Uh, and this happened in Ferguson the same way people out in the street, people you know, turning over cars and whatnot. And then they stop. Well, part of what you do when you seek justice, ladies and gentlemen, is that you follow a case closely, daily. You find out as much information as you can, and if it even smells like injustice, you call it. This ain't right, whatever it is. I'm not saying that's happening in Baltimore. I'm just saying that's what you do when the cameras are turned off. That's what you do when people aren't out in the street anymore. You follow, and you follow through. I don't know how many cases in Brooklyn are going to end up with several million-dollar settlements for guys that got locked up for 15, 20, 25 years. But there's a late, uh, uh, one lately, Jonathan Fleming. He was last year cleared of a murder conviction after a decades-old phone receipt supported his alibi that he wasn't even in New York at the time. He's reached a $6.25 million settlement with New York City for years of imprisonment. Now, there are some that scream and holler about this. Remember the Central Park Five? 
Oh, no, how could you settle with these people for that kind of money? What is wrong? It is about correcting injustice, ladies and gentlemen. And what happened to Jonathan Fleming was injustice. He spent 24 years of a 25-year-to-life sentence in prison. 24 years. Scott Stringer deserves credit in my book for negotiating these things before they go to trial. And more money is spent. Now, he was convicted of killing a rival drug dealer in 1989. He maintained that he was in Florida. In 2013, the Conviction Review Unit at the office of the Brooklyn DA, now this is not Ken Thompson, it's Charles Hines, examined the case. In the case file, investigators found a receipt showing that Mr. Fleming made a phone call at 9.27 p.m. in Orlando, five hours before the shooting at 2.15 the next morning, making it nearly impossible for him to have returned to Brooklyn to commit the crime. Imagine that. 24 years of your life. Now, we ought also, while we're on the subject of people being wrongly incarcerated or over-incarcerated, depending on how you want to look at it, you got to look at some of the political prisoners in this country, African-Americans and black folks in particular, who fought against the system, got caught up in whatever, and they've been in jail. I mean, some of these people have been in jail for like 40-something years. They're in ill health. Their health is declining. And calls for their release, even on humanitarian grounds, fall on deaf ears. There are people who just as soon, just as soon see them die in prison. Not because they, uh, most of them didn't go out and murder anybody. But their political beliefs, which involves progressive black nationalism in many cases, is not something that the system wants widely disseminated. So they keep them in jail. They're not going to get a $6.25 million settlement when and if they get out. But it's worth mentioning that there are literally dozens, if not hundreds of people in New York and across this country who are in that situation. You know, I guess they decided, like, for example, in the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, and a lot of people go back and forth about whether he did it, whether he didn't do it. Uh, they seem to have imposed a death sentence by letting his diabetes rage to the point that he's almost dead. Regardless of whether he did it or didn't do it, he doesn't deserve humane health care while he's incarcerated. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. On the policing front, some of you may have heard that the city council apparently is allocating enough bucks to hire 1,300 new cops. I'd be very curious how thoroughly these cops, potential cops, will be vetted for attitude. What do I mean by attitude? Racial or racist attitude is exactly what I'm talking about. You know, are they doing enough? And I'm, I'll, I'll say that a lot of people really didn't like Ray Kelly. Ray Kelly went out and aggressively recruited black cops. 
Bill Bratton, on the other hand, says we can't find enough because half of them got records, which is like nonsense. But be that as it may, he's now going to use these officers in a new and what he says is innovative way. In the near future, Bill Bratton says, patrol officers will be assigned to fixed areas of their precincts and given time to address neighborhood concerns without being interrupted by 911 calls. The approach, called neighborhood policing by top officials, has been underway since late May in four pilot precincts, I'm reading from the New York Times, in Washington Heights, in Manhattan, wait a minute, oh, okay, in Washington Heights, in Manhattan, and the Rockaways in Queens. Now, I don't know exactly what the minutia of this is, but when I hear the term neighborhood policing, the first thing I think of is community policing. Any of y'all old enough to remember community policing, which was, by the way, an initiative of the Dinkins administration? It was about making police officers visible and accessible to the law-abiding people of communities across New York. And now we got a pilot program that they call neighborhood policing that sounds, sounds, I could be wrong, maybe it's completely different. Neighborhood, community, community, neighborhood, I don't know. But it sounds an awful lot like community policing. Which, by the way, fell into disrepute during the Giuliani years. The uh, uh, Bloomberg years. I always tend to look at community policing as one of the first steps toward lowering New York City's crime rate, which was abnormally high when David Dinkins took office. You know, people tend to think, well, crime on David Dinkins' watch had exploded. Crime had exploded before David Dinkins became mayor. But that's another discussion for another day. Uh, apparently, Bratton did get into the minutiae of this thing. He says, quote, it's not a program. It will be how the NYPD intends to, over the coming years, police the city. He said that the concept wasn't new. And we'll see whether it works. The chief of patrol, Carlos Gomez, talked about how it looked in the 34th precinct in Washington Heights. In the past, there would be 27 officers on an eight-hour tour with a majority assigned to special units. Under the new plan, there will be 35 officers on the same tour, and uh, nearly two-thirds will work on what's called calls for service. The greater number of officers available for emergencies creates more time for non-enforcement and proactive community interaction. Now, I really hope, I really, really hope that the NYPD is serious about this. I know some people just got no use for the police, period, and I'm not one of those people. I believe that there ought to be a decent, respectful relationship between the police and the people who they're sworn to protect and serve. Otherwise, you might as well just throw up your hands and say, okay, whatever. So I'm hoping that this works. I don't know. I'm not the most optimistic human being on the face of the planet, only because 
there's sometimes a, a little slippage between you know what people say and what actually gets done. Now, you know, if, if Bill Bratton is going to watch this uh, closely enough and see to it it actually gets implemented properly, then it could be good. Apparently, one of the changes is is the dismantling of small units that are ta- that ta- are tasked with addressing low level and quality of life crimes. They're called conditions teams. Uh, for more than a decade, officers assigned to such teams have been responsible for rooting out entrenched areas of disorder. Uh, this is interesting. This is very... Apparently, this is Bill Bratton's answer to situations like what happened with Eric Garner. Where, you know, I guess they considered that to be an entrenched area of disorder since they busted him more than once selling cigarettes there. So we'll see. We shall see. Uh, From our, this is how the other half lives department. Newly minted MBAs are earning more than ever. And they're working less. Uh, I forgot the name of the cigarette, but they used to have a commercial. Are you smoking more now, but enjoying it less than you should change to whomever? Well, apparently, these new MBAs, business school grads, are pulling in 125 grand a year to start from banks, private equity firms, hedge funds, and consulting jobs. 43% of the MBAs will make 125 grand, up from just 9% of MBAs who graduated just in 2013, two years ago. It's nice work if you can get it, I guess. Nice work. If you can get it. How many of y'all go to Whole Foods, party people? I was in there the other day. See, Whole Foods is one of the few places that you can find fresh, off-the-bone turkey, which is one of the great joys of my life. So, you know, I, I went there. I got a few things at Whole Foods. I try not to spend the whole paycheck in there. But now there are questions about whether or not Whole Foods is shortchanging consumers on a massive level. Uh, Which means, I guess, for them, whole paycheck isn't quite good enough. Apparently, there have been a a number of violations that came during a sting operation the Department of Consumer Affairs conducted in the fall. They checked the accuracy of the weight marked on prepackaged products. I don't buy prepackaged products from Whole Foods. I try not to. Maybe maybe some chicken, because the chicken is pretty good. And I'm finicky about chicken. I've learned how to marinate chicken in lemon lemon juice and olive oil and a few other things, and it makes heavenly chicken. Anyway, it's another discussion because I, you know, I ain't no Guy Fieri or Gordon Ramsay. But be that as it may, uh, Whole Foods is being accused of of like being kind of rogue when it comes to overcharging customers based on weight. Inspectors weighed. 80 different types of items at Whole Foods, eight locations in the city. They found every label was inaccurate. Many overcharging customers, some undercharging customers. Whole Foods spokesman Michael Sinatra said the chain never intentionally used deceptive practices to incorrectly charge customers. Now, you know what that is, right? 
That's corporate ass covering. We never intentionally did it. We may have done it, but we didn't do it on purpose. It disagrees, Whole Foods does, with the city's findings. And they essentially say they're going to vigorously defend themselves. So think about that the next time you're in there giving up the paycheck. The governor of Louisiana, Bobby Jindal, is the latest Republican to throw his hat, although I've never seen him in one, in the ring. I have lost track of how many people are running for the presidency of these great United States. I guess Jindal figures he's got as good a shot as anybody. He's trying to reach evangelical Christian voters in the Republican Party, as is damn near everybody else that's running. So we'll, we'll see how that works for him. How about that? Our final story, the end, as it were, goes back to Charleston, South Carolina. Because, you know, there are people who, no matter what happens, will find some rationale to blame the victim. I'm talking specifically about a state representative named Bill Chumley. He did an interview the other day that insisted that the nine black victims could have put up more of a fight. He said, quote, these people sit in there and waited to be shot. Why didn't somebody just do something? We got one skinny person shooting a gun. We need to do what we can. The interviewer was flabbergasted. So I want to make sure I understand what you're telling me. Are you asking that these people should have tackled him? These women should have fought him? Now, Chumley is a member of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, so you understand that. And they call that a heritage group, whatever. He said, I don't know what the answer was. I know it's really horrible for nine people to be shot, and I understand he reloaded his gun. That's upsetting. Chumley, go back under whatever rock you came out of. Time for me to go. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld, who kept us on the path this evening. Stay tuned for all the great programming here on the Progressive Radio Network. We'll be back next Wednesday, 6 p.m. My name is Mark Riley. This has been the Mark Riley Show. Have yourselves a great evening and a better weekend.